Welcome to the Advice and Insights Podcast with David L. Bonson. Hello and welcome to this week's Advice and Insights Podcast, which I am both recording live by video here on Facebook and then uh, simultaneously recording the audio streaming for our Advice and Insights Podcast. And I'm doing it here early Monday morning before the market is open. We're going to open down... Uh, another 170 points. We were down a couple hundred Friday. We were down 500 on Thursday. So the market is down about 1,200 points over the last week since last Tuesday, not even a week yet, and continuing to fall. And we don't expect this to get any better in a fundamental sense until uh, the president comes to his senses. Um, This is by far, from my vantage point, um, the worst uh, policy decision that this president has made were overwhelmingly uh, defensive of the uh, tax policy, very, very fond of the vast majority of it, and in fact, praiseworthy would be the right word as it pertains to the corporate tax side. Uh, we've been nothing but complimentary of the deregulation that's taken place across the federal uh, business aspect of administering and overseeing and regulating commerce and banking. Um, there's been a very pro-business environment. And one of the things that we were complimentary of throughout the first year of the Trump administration is that he appeared to be far more bark in the campaign than bite in the White House on some of his protectionist instincts. And that all changed last uh, Wednesday and Thursday. Um, And we shall see how it plays out. But I want to make the case here in the next few minutes for it uh, reversing course, despite the fact that everyone, uh, which is not very many people, you're talking about the president and his trade advisor, Pete Navarro, who's a hyper isolationist, radical professor out of uh, UCI. Um, those appear to be really kind of the only people fully engaged in defensive of what uh, is happening. Even Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who is far more protectionist than I would care for, um, wanted a more targeted and specific form of tariffs implemented. Uh, And the president went forward with a sweeping tariff for all countries on all steel, all countries on all aluminum, Ironically, even aluminum labor unions are saying, well, geez, they got to carve out Canada because Canada is involved in so much of the supply chain of American aluminum being made. So um, we, we shall see. It is not codified yet. They have declared it. They have unambiguously dug their heels in on it um, and are stating that no allies will be excluded. Um, but there is still time for cooler heads to prevail, although I'm, I'm losing optimism in that. Let me, let me start with some kind of economics 101 around, around trade deficits, period. The United States right now has about a $560 billion trade deficit. So, so that sounds pretty horrible, right? In theory, um, people hear the word deficit, assume it is something overwhelmingly negative, which is somewhat understandable, I would point out that where there really is a negative in the word deficit, meaning budget deficits, meaning we're not generating as much revenue as we are spending and we're therefore indebting future generations, well, no one seems to care about budget deficits, but where there actually is nothing intrinsically malignant about a deficit at all, a trade deficit, we've decided to let the well be poisoned. 
Um, so let me explain what I mean. A trade deficit simply means it's the sum of what you are uh, exporting and importing and to the extent that you are uh, exporting less than you are importing, you have a trade deficit. But there must always and forever be a balance of payments. And so the inverse of the trade deficit is the capital account. And in the United States, this is particularly important because a, our dollar is the reserve currency of the world. And we are uh, the largest economy that has so many goods and services that need to be create that need to be consumed and need to be produced that um, we are in desperate need of significant investment, and we get it because it's an attractive place to invest. And what happens is when we have a trade deficit because we are importing more, well, they're sending us products and we are sending them money, dollars. They are taking those dollars and they are reinvesting in, you guessed it, the United States. So this massive inflow of foreign investment largely comes from that uh, trade deficit, which represents a balance of payments into our capital account. This isn't rocket science, it's very simple, but the reality is that since the days of David Ricardo and the great classical economist of the 18th and 19th century, I would argue Adam Smith even predating Ricardo, we have believed fervently in this country in specialization of labor, and even more than that division of labor, we have fervently believed in the concept that what one can do uh, more effectively than another act, they ought to do the one they're best at and allow the other act to be done by somebody else. And so there is this sort of marginal law of economics at play that is very important. The American consumer has been very, very happy to purchase goods that can be manufactured cheaper overseas, but we're really not even talking about any of that here. Um, cheap China uh, exports that come into the country and, and uh, represent a, a problem for American worker and all these things. We're not talking about American manufacturing. Effectively here, 2.2% of American steel is produced in China. The largest external country producing steel that the U.S. imports is Canada, an ally directly to our north, representing about 16 to 17% of U.S. steel. Um, America, by and large, uh, uses U.S.-made steel, and that, pro that, um, that, that uh, production level has stayed level for many, many years for a number of market-oriented supply conditions. But what you have um, when you're talking about this particular tariff, which is a 25% tax on all imported steel and a 10% tax on all imported aluminum, the, the uh, impact is then felt by those companies that use steel in their own manufacturing processes. So auto industry, the aviation industry, you can't make an airplane or a car without using steel. On the aluminum side, the soda and beverage cans have gotten a good amount of attention over the weekend. And the fact of the matter is that steel and aluminum permeates an, a mass amount of, of the U.S. economy. And so it is a significantly important part of both what we do here in the United States and then our interconnectedness to the global economy. 
So when I talk about the trade deficit in and of itself not being a negative thing, I'm not trying to get into the academic weeds of economics. It's a very important concept. Politically, there's hay to be made by claiming that a trade deficit is a very bad thing. And to the extent that that were true, it would clearly mean that a trade surplus is a very good thing. But we have a real problem here. Venezuela, Brazil, and Russia who are arguably in perpetual depressions, certainly Venezuela and Russia, all ha operate from a trade surplus. See, and this is what happens in the fallacy of zero-sum economics. The truth of the matter is that when we are importing more than we're exporting and yet growing our economy, we're not poorer as a country because of what I said earlier about capital accounts. We receive money, they receive money that then is invested back in the US, but even more than that, you have total trade that's growing, which is the real aggregate number that all economists should be interested in, all investors should be interested in, and all people desiring to understand this topic more. A gross aggregate amount of trade, imports plus exports, that sum should be the number that we are focused on when it comes to public policy. If one wants to have a trade surplus with a much lower gross denominator or total sum product of trade, then they can be Venezuela. The, and now maybe you think that's too extreme an example. Probably it is. There's a whole lot of reasons why that country is a disaster. But Russia has an incredible amount of natural resources and they export a lot of them. The reality is, is that Russia's command control economy and perpetual depressionary state uh, is the uh, attraction for nobody. And so the the fallacy the trade deficits in and of himself has political uh, merit to it but I want to point out the United States has not had a trade surplus since 1975 okay would you want to claim with a straight face that the 80s and the 90s were not periods of economic prosperity that were good for workers that were good for shareholders that were good for across the business environment economic employment uh, uh, generating new avenues of productivity and prosperity in America. It, it's insane. So I'm arguing first and foremost that we are trying to solve a problem we do not have. To the extent we then say, well, yes, we do. Steel workers are being unfairly penalized. They're not being penalized by Chinese steel in the United States. It's 2% of our total production. So what are they being penalized by? And then what does that mean up against the total big picture? And what I would argue is that with six and a half million jobs in sectors that are using steel for what they make, primarily, as I alluded to earlier, industrial companies, automobile manufacturing, aviation, and, and obviously um, a whole form of different things that, that represent products being made. And, and on the aluminum side, again, equal amount of, of heavy and diversified usage. Six and a half million jobs in companies that utilize steel and aluminum. And 140,000 jobs in the US involved in actually manufacturing steel. So the notion that if there were a problem in the steel industry, we would be willing to pick a sector that has 80 times less U.S. workers, I think is a grotesque violation of, of what our mandate ought to be. 
and that it will create the same problems that are always created when the government gets in the business of picking winners and losers. Now, is the steel industry in a lot of trouble? Well, U.S. Steel, one of the largest U.S. Uh, steel companies, had net profits last quarter of well over $100 million. They had had losses last year, uh, the same quarter, in the 50 to $100 million range. So they've improved profits net-net somewhere in between $100 and $200 million year over year. Nucor, the largest steel manufacturer, right up there with U.S. Steel. There's only a couple of major players in the space. Their stock since the year 2000 is up over 500%, something in that range. Um, so it, you, you're looking at an industry that is largely flatlined. There's been incredible technological efficiencies that have come around. Um, and yes, we do import a fair amount of steel. We're still the major player there. Uh, but we're importing it from Canada. We're importing it from a whole host of other countries. China's barely a blip on that. And so I back to where we were. We're, we're arguing uh, for a, to solve a problem that we don't have, and we're doing it in a field where we don't have that particular problem. And then if we did have the problem, we're ignoring the far greater issue that gets created um, in the economy relative to the size of the problem that we're allegedly trying, trying to fix. And then what does this invite? What, what do we face now as a result of these actions? Well, the tariffs are paid. They are taxes. That's what it means, okay? These protective tariffs are paid by the users of the, the product. I've heard all weekend how, look, this 10% tax on aluminum will equal about one penny per can. That may or may not be true. It usually isn't because they're looking, they're doing a very pedestrian calculation to come up with that number and ignoring the various levels of the supply chain along the way. But if we grant it at 8.8 .8 billion cans manufactured a year, that's $880 million. That's nearly a billion dollars that comes out of the hands of U.S. consumers and into the hands of the government. Now, on the automobile side, the most conservative projection is this represents in aggregate $3 billion a year. Perhaps it, uh, when you divide it per automobile, people can brush it off as being benign. I don't think it is benign, and I certainly don't think it's benign to lower income, blue collar workers in the Midwest and Rust Belt. But even if I wanted to say that it was an aggregate, we cannot claim these things are minuscule. First of all, I know conservative Republicans would never say it were minuscule if it were a tiny little tax increase that was being proposed by a state politician or a federal politician. So there's a certain degree of hypocrisy going on. But as an economist, I would say it's even worse because we believe in the efficient allocation of capital. And to say that because with one person it only amounts to this much per car or this much to, to soda pop, we ignore the fact that billions of dollars are leaving the hands of efficient and rational economic actors driven by a profit motive, driven by productivity, doing the good work of growing goods and services in the United States and moving it to the hands, to the confiscatory hands of the federal government. This is not what we believe in the concept of free market economics. And particularly, this administration has not believed it. They've done incredible work to reform the corporate tax code that was non-competitive and non-efficient. So what we're left with is essentially saying, good news, we've done this incredible corporate tax reform, bad news, we're now implementing these very burdensome tariffs in targeted industries, 
that will then cross up and down supply chain, manufacturing, other parts of the economy. And then here's the real, real uh, doozy, the most important part of the conclusion, which is all of this economic ignorance in an area that doesn't have a problem, doing it the wrong way, ignoring side effects, uh, uh, picking winners and losers, all then ends up with the extraordinary risk of a global trade war. The idea that the European Union will take this line down is absurd. The idea that Canada doesn't have some degree of leverage to respond is absurd. Now, the president said some things that obviously I don't believe he really means. I, I, I don't mean to use this forum to critique whatever he chooses to do with his Twitter account. But saying a trade war is easy to win, which were his exact words this weekend, I would argue is probably the dumbest thing he's ever said on Twitter, um, except for the fact that I don't believe he really believes it. The reality is that we have no historical precedent, no empirical data at all that suggests a trade war is easy to win. And by the way, there is no such thing as a winner in a trade war. I'm not saying that Europe will win or Canada will win or China will win. I'm saying no one will win. Everyone loses because by definition, voluntary exchange is a mutually beneficial thing. So when you go into protective tariff trade wars, you suppress global trade, which is intrinsically compressing of economic growth. If that were not true, there would be no reason for people to voluntarily trade with one another. We trade because we see value in freely trading. When we suppress such, we have done damage to economic opportunity. This is Economics 101. To the degree that we have retaliation, it, the cost of which will be borne by the consumers and the products that are uh, involved in such retaliation. Could uh, we see Canada, Europe, others put on their own tariffs against Harley Davidson's made in Wisconsin, against oranges may, uh, that, are, that are planted in the state of Florida, highly politically toxic states? Certainly we could. Other countries are not dumb animals either. They're economic actors with political savvy. So the problem we have here is we don't know that it creates uncertainty. The reason the market drops another 100 points after its 1,200 point drop in the last few days. In the midst of what had been an unbelievable February recovery coming out of the silly stuff that took place at the end of the month, excuse me, the beginning of, of February. So you had, the, you, you had this incredible narrative that was taking hold, largely one I agree with that there is this robust economic uh, activity and growth taking place that is now being coupled with even more uh, prosperity-inducing stimulus in the form of corporate tax reform, more efficient allocation of capital. And right in the midst of it, we decide to go down this path that virtually everyone in the economic team of the Trump administration is against, whether informal advisors from the campaign like Stephen Moore and Larry Kudlow and Art Laffer, to uh, his own National Economic Council director, Gary Cohn, to his own uh, uh, chairman of economic affairs, Kevin Hazett, all opposed. But is there a political agenda here? If there is, it's highly misguided. 
Um, they're, they're, this is going to hurt auto workers in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan. This is going to hurt the, the big narrative that he is very fond of around stock market growth. I just cannot see a benefit economically other than in the very short term, potentially, to some of the steelmaker stocks. Even that, I don't think, will last. I mean, we see already with the aluminum companies, them saying this blunt instrument is going to hurt us as it pertains to supply chain. We're interdependent with Canada and even how aluminum gets made. So be that as it may, um, my own opinions here are being shared. Uh, and, and my opinions here are not really my biggest priority. I, I do have a very strong ideological belief about free market economics. And, and, but from an investor standpoint, the only way to offset the impact of what takes place in this, in this uh, mess regarding trade and how it impacts trade deficit and so forth is then the currency to adjust. And as, as you see this, you will see the dollar weaken further and that will, that will take away incentive and opportunity for foreign capital to come invest into the U.S., which is what has been balancing our capital account. So fundamentally, the foreign investment in the U.S. declining offsets any benefit he thinks he gets out of trying to deal with the trade deficit, which is not going to happen anyways, as we've already said. I would argue that if indeed they go forward with this and if indeed they go forward with it in the way they're threatening and uh, the second and third and fourth order uh, derivative effects, trade wars, retaliation, other things that could end up taking place, some very quickly and, 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 and transparently and some maybe just over time um, very subtly. Either way, it's a net-net negative for U.S. equity investing. So we have to watch it closely because we have believed in the narrative of strong, robust economic growth, justifying some premium equity multiples or equity valuations. And that narrative, in my opinion, is under duress right now. Uh, we don't want to do anything uh, uh, you know, crazy or impulsive, but it needs to be monitored. And I would argue that it probably makes non-U.S. Uh, areas that are not directly likely to be tied into some of this trade potential drama uh, more attractive. Certain aspects of emerging markets could end up being net beneficiary. Japan could very likely end up being a net beneficiary. Um, so that's sort of the investor uh, attitude we have to have right now is watching it carefully. Um, but the reality about a bullish thesis that's rooted economic growth is that that thesis can change when there is an intervening factoid like this. And I don't know that it will come in. And by the way, even if it does fully come in, if no one is successful in talking the president off of this uh, misguided policy direction, the reality is, is if, it, if I thought it was just isolated to the aluminum side or what have you, but, but we can't know that. We can't operate that way. There is a significant risk of this spreading. And, and I uh, believe the bluster that we've seen from the president and, uh, over the last few days on Twitter and, and him putting Pete Navarro on TV yesterday to say some of the most fallacious economic things I've heard in my adult life. Very concerning. So uh, for the sake of job holders, 
in the U.S. for the sake of total economic growth, for the sake of the opportunities that get created from the free exchange of goods and services, including across countries and international actors. Let's hope that something reverses here. And in the meantime, from an investment standpoint, we're going to be very uh, prepared to act and, and change direction if need be. Any questions, reach out anytime. Hope you've enjoyed not only observing and listening to this Facebook Live, but for those listening to Advice and Insights podcast, we thank you for listening to this week's edition. Please subscribe to our Advice and Insights podcast. And uh, if you want, you can even leave us a nice review. Uh, back to work we go. Thanks. Thank you for listening to our Advice and Insights podcast with David L. Bonson. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance, and it's not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.